Hello and welcome back to the Mead Podcast with Gosnells. My name's Ted. Today we're talking about the history of Mead. We'll start with a little bit of history from Tom, then we will talk in a little bit more detail about a historic Mead that we've been making in the brewery this week. Hi Tom, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. I'm a little bit under the weather, I'm not going to lie, so apologies if I have a very deep voice. That's fine. <laughs> no worries at all. So Tom, you've been doing some stuff with the BBC recently. What have you been up to there? Oh uh, yeah, so it's actually quite a good week to be talking about the history of me. So last week I filmed some stuff for a Christmas special with them. They're doing a Christmas special with Lucy Worsley on Tudor Christmas food and drink, basically. So she's trotting around the country eating and drinking in a Tudor style around Christmas. Um, and so we made a historical mead for them, um, which is actually a metheglin. Um, and we'll talk to James and Will from the brewery about that in a bit more detail later. We were on that, it was really interesting actually, we were on that with uh, Jager Wise from Wildcard and she had made a Groot which is a traditional type of ale, so a beer, made without hops but made with, with herbs and spices. So that was really interesting, actually quite sessionable as well. So it was a good very, afternoon. Yeah, very nice, very nice. So Tom, you obviously know a lot about mead. Well I'd hope so, it has been, <laughs> has been a little while. It has been a very long time. <laughs> so where does mead come from then, where do we start? So, I mean, I'm, first of all, I'm, I'm by no means an expert, although I have read probably everything there is to, to read out, out there on mead and the history of mead. Um, most of the, actually the best source for this, if you're really interested and you're a proper mead geek, is uh, Ken Schramm's The Complete Mead Maker. So there's a really good chapter in there about the history of mead and it goes into quite a lot of detail. Um, there are obviously some other more historical sources uh, out there about mead. Um, and it's, as with all these things back in history, me is probably not that well studied, so there's a there's quite a lot of um, differences of opinions about where things come from. So don't hang me if um, these things uh, you know not quite not quite what you've heard. But uh, it's fair to say Mead's got a, quite a rich history. Uh, it goes well back into time, um, certainly into prehistory. So if you take honey from a hive, particularly early in the season when there's quite a lot of water in the hive. Um, the honey won't be preserved so it'll just start fermenting the wild yeast will get in there and it'll start fermenting the honey into alcohol and there's quite a lot of evidence that goes back sort of 10 12,000 years um, in a couple of places in africa um, and also in china uh, where they found bits of pottery with alcohol grains and pollen in which suggests some sort of fermented beverage made out of stuff including honey so everyone always argues about what the oldest booze is and everyone wants to say it's either beer or wine or mead it's probably a mix of everything they were less sort of dogmatic about what went into stuff as long as it fermented and got you got you drunk so then sort of moving forward through history a little bit it crops up um again pretty much all over the world in many many cultures in different forms um, you look at sort of tablets from Mesopotamia and there's certainly evidence that they were making honey-based alcohol there. Again, looking a bit further forward in time, you move into sort of the, the Greeks and the Romans and they were certainly using honey to sweeten up their wine, um, potentially just, just to increase the flavour. So to, to maybe cover up some of the roughness, although actually there's quite a lot of evidence that they made pretty reasonable wine. It might have just been to sort of sweeten and spice up the, the maybe the cheaper wines. Um, and there's a lot of evidence to say that that's actually when we first domesticated bees was was specifically for the production of, of honey to sweeten up wines. Okay, great. So why don't we bring us a little bit closer to home? Uh, what about the UK and the history with me there? So there's, a, again, a really rich history in the UK. So if you look back into Celtic culture and then moving forwards a bit into Anglo-Saxon culture, mead crops up quite a lot. I guess the classic text is Beowulf, 
um, which is set in a mead hall. So they're all um, sitting around the evening, spanking the mead and waiting for this monster to arrive. So mead has a has a real place in its place in their culture, and it, it kind of continues up until broadly the the Norman conquest of 1066. Okay, great. A very important question, which I think people ask themselves a lot, is why did mead actually fall out of favour? Why did it start to decline in popularity? Sure. So I think it was that the the crux point was was sort of 1066. So the Normans came in and replaced our aristocracy with their own aristocracy and, and brought in their own alcohol traditions, and that was mainly cider and perry. Uh, fruit wines and then then some other sort of grape wines and so when the rich people in society are drinking something quite different um, that then filters down through society and it it kind of marginalises mead as more of a uh, a lower end more rural country thing as opposed to um, an urban elite sort of thing Um, and alongside this you've also got the, the advent of other booze coming in so up until about the 14th century, uh, 14th, 15th century, I'm not, I can't quite remember, um, hops weren't used in beer. So before that, um, beer only had a shelf life of, I think, two to three days before, before it started to go bad. After the introduction of hops, which were primarily introduced as a preservative rather than a flavour, we know, if, you know a hoppy IPA today is there for the flavour, but actually the hops are a massive preservative. They have a real antibacterial effect which means the beer lasts a lot longer, more like six or seven days. And that means that the whole product is much more economically viable and cheaper. Um, Alongside this, trade starts to get going a lot more. So you're bringing in wines from places like um, Spain and France, um, and the technology is there to kind of keep them for longer. And finally, then you've got the advent of spirits. So that's when when distillation starts happening and you start getting the first evidence of of scotch whiskey and that kind of stuff. So really, it's a cumulative effect of a few different things displacing mead, which are, and the other things are cheaper and I guess easier to make. Okay, really interesting. What's happening today with regard to mead? What's actually brought it back to popularity a bit? Well, so it's, a, it's an interesting question, and everyone always asks me, is it just because of Game of Thrones? And I think that's uh, it's probably not because of Game of Thrones. Um, Mead is having a bit of a renaissance, and it has done for about the last, uh, I'd say, 10 to, 10 to 20 years. And it starts in the US, um, where there are, I can't remember the stat, it keeps going up and up, but sort of 500 plus meaderies across the States. And there's much more of a scene there than there is potentially in Europe or, or the UK. Um, why that is, uh, is probably open for speculation. Um, certainly the advent of craft beer and better beer has meant that people are looking for new products that are interesting, well-crafted with a real source of provenance. And mead fits all those bills. You can get this real sense of terroir and, and sort of craftsmanship out of, out of a really good mead. Um, just like you would do a beer or a wine. Um, and that's quite exciting um, for a significant proportion of people who, who are looking for something new and exciting and different. Um, so the, the meat industry is certainly growing. It's what It was declared, I think, the fastest growing category in the US in 2017. I haven't looked at the stats for 2018 or 2019, but I imagine it's the same. It's obviously starting from quite a low base, but it's growing massively. Uh, and it's a really exciting time. That's really, really interesting. 
So we're going to be talking to Will and James from our brewery about a Metheglin now, um, which is a really historic mead. Um, what do you know about Metheglin? What do I know? Only what I learned from, from the BBC shoot the other day, that Metheglin is, it actually comes from the Welsh word for medicine. So it's got some healing properties, allegedly, not that we would sign up to that. So the, the herbs and spices that go into it are designed to, I guess, soothe the humours of the, of the blood. Um, and it comes from from the Welsh, Welsh for medicine, and it was quite popular in the Tudor court because Henry Tudor was always keen to play up his sort of Welsh heritage, and, and that played in quite well. And obviously, um, the king, the, the court was the the celebrity of the day, and, and that kind of set the set the tone and the fashion. Um, so yeah, it was it was quite popular during the 16th century. So I'm joined here with Will and James from our brewery team, and today we're going to be talking about a methaglin, which is a, a very old-fashioned type of mead. Um, I don't know a huge deal about it, but today we're going to learn a lot more about it and why it's such a cool and historic mead to be brewing at Gosnells. So guys, why don't you talk us through the recipe you've made, why you made it, and where it actually came from. Hey Ted, thanks for having us again, and it's nice to have James on the podcast as well. Hey, yeah, good to be here. So the recipe starts with um, sort of boiling off your, your honey, which is something that we generally don't have to do anymore. Um, so they'll be getting their raw honey and putting it into mixing with water, and then as they're boiling it, they're just taking scrapings off the top and just getting rid of all the the bits of bee and 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 all the other you know properties and things and wax that you don't really want in your honey will float to the top when you boil it. So they start just, you know skimming that off the top until they get a, a consistency that they're happy with, and then you start to add in your all your herbs. So in this case, it was it was ten ten different herbs from violet leaves to strawberry leaves, heart tongue, balm leaves, rosemary. All these these things, and I guess that these recipes would also change season to season, what they had dried and and what they had, could get their hands to. Um, the the next part of that was then to start um, adding all the the herbs and stuff in and getting that boil running for about an hour, um, and then after that they would allow it to to cool down in a wooden vessel and sort of uh, pitch whatever yeast they had. Sometimes they would use. Um, the, the yeast that's in the honey itself or maybe they would have access to bread yeast from a baker and it doesn't actually state in this recipe where the, where the yeast comes from it sort of just gives hint to uh, natural yeast where it's like pour it into a wooden vessel and make sure that you have um, a way for the air to escape otherwise the barrel will explode um, so once that's cooled down and starts to ferment there then you would put in the cloves and the nutmeg which for a metheglin of this type to only add those two is, is sort of remnant of, of what they had around and um, then the last additive to that would be uh, ginger. So once I add that to, they close it off and then allow that to sort of ferment out over uh, however however long that would be until they would stop hearing the whistling coming out of the barrel pretty much. So this was, this was an interesting one. So this is uh, getting a, a recipe from the BBC getting asked to, uh, to make something that uh, we never thought of making before, especially in this way. The recipe itself is from an awesomely titled book uh, the Closet of the Imminently Learned by Sir Kenelm Digby. It's a, it's a recipe book not just about about me, but about sort of uh, food and bread and, and lots of other weird and wonderfuls. Um, they talk a lot about honey and the clearing of that and, and different types of honey as well. It's, it's quite an interesting read. The reason we chose this recipe uh, is because it's very honey forward and that's one of the things we like to do here at Gosnells is really showcase the honey. The recipe talks about uh, honey used from um, high dry country where rose, where wild rosemary and thyme and flowers grow in abundance. Um, also uses about 
It also talks about uh, taking honey from different times of the year. It gets different sort of honey flavor profiles. Um, it also talks about herbs that you don't really see nowadays, um, such as like strawberry leaves and lemon balm, which is really lucky for us actually, because we have a lemon balm tree around the corner from our production facility. What is actually interesting about uh, methylene? Uh, Methylene is quite interesting. Uh, it's using uh, a lot of herbs and spices, which which means that it can be done in a, a million different ways. Um, mainly the the herbs will give you that sort of uh, nitrogen base, where it sort of allow you to sort of uh, feed your feed your yeast, as as in those days you didn't have sort of things like um, like we use now. So some of the interesting things about this is uh, just how the recipe is structured. Um, so it asks for like a, an hour boil with about ten different uh, herbs at the start and usually you would look at that and sort of think that that's, that's too many flavors going across it'd be it'd be too complicated it would just muck everything up and you wouldn't be able to get anything in particular through um, as it come out it come out this brown sort of cloudy color and we thought you know that's that's exactly how this was going to turn out and then after about two days through fermentation it just started dropping all this out and clearing to the bottom and settling with the uh, the yeast sediment at the bottom of the of the um, fermenter and it ended up becoming quite clean and distinct where you could put your nose into it and really pick out each individual herb that we just uh, that we put into the boil. The other interesting part of this was uh, just how they got their gravity um, at this time where they would um, float an egg and depending on how far the egg was above the, uh, the liquor line that um, they would know, you know whether it was going to be strong or medium or how sweet it was going to finish at the end as well. So just this one little method that they use to uh, to figure out um, how their finished product would be um, is something that uh, I never really thought about or, or or knew how they got things to be so consistent. So you mentioned that the the color of the liquid is actually brown, um, which is which is obviously quite different to the style of meat that we're making here. Normally it goes on to the sparkling meat. What is actually different to uh, this meat in comparison to normal meats? I think the main difference is just the the amount of herbs and spices they use. In this, uh, with most other mead styles, um, they tend to use more fruits and fruit juice and things like apples and uh, and grapes. Um, I think this is coming from a period of time where people used lots of herbs and spices and distilled it in spirit, you know, giving you a different sort of um, so sort of thing that was readily available at the time as well. You know, fruit yeah. is something that's uh, you know you would end up using to create uh, alcohol as the end of the harvest would go. And this is something that you can add to it to, to intensify that flavour profile. Yeah, but as, it, as a visual thing, like the methedlin started off uh, brown in colour, um, but all that brown was the colour that came from the, from the nitrogen using all the different spices. Okay, interesting. Um, and as the yeast sort of ate through that, all that got cleared up and it became a clear product. Right, okay, very, very cool. So different to sort of what we do now is the idea that uh, when we use herbs and spices in, in especially some of our products, we use we tend to use maybe one or two, or we we tend to uh, highlight whatever we're using, whatever we're using to spice that spice the mead with. Mm. So, for instance, with the hibiscus, we're only using hibiscus in the mead. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Okay, cool. And I'm assuming this methylene turned out quite well. Then I'm assuming if you were to brew it again, you would slightly refine the recipe. What would you do differently uh, if you were to brew this one more time? Use less cloves. Yeah, I think cloves are cloves are really strong flavored spice, and um, yeah cut back on those really because it came out pretty Christmassy. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, so the only other things we would sort of would have a look at changing, if we were to make this uh, uh, again, and if I was to do it again, would be to re yeah, reduce some of those um, sort of those primary additives, the, the cloves, the nutmeg, um, but also kind of highlight maybe a little 
a little more of those those herbs in there as well. So we used um, we use these balm leaves that we're now which when you sort of get them and rub them together, they've got this this lemon sherbety sort of smell to them. And if we did that again, I'd like to maybe accentuate some of those uh, some of those herbs that generally aren't used anymore, um, and make them sort of stand forefront. You know, keep the the red sage to the back and and put the strawberry leaves and the, and the, the lemon balm forward and and really um, accentuate them. We were pretty lucky with the the lemon balm leaves, weren't we? Yeah, it was it was one of those sort of uh, one of those moments that just uh, just happened. So we were sort of after work having a beer in a park, not not too far away from from our um, production facility, and sitting there and looking over, and there was this little uh, bush on the ground. Sort of picked it up, and you know, as, as you do as as brewers, as any any little thing that's out there, you sort of grab it and rub your hands on it and smell it and go, you know, check it on Google whether or not it's edible or whether... Hope it's not poisonous. Hope it's not poisonous. <laughs> and uh, rubbed it together and uh, had this beautiful lemon sherbet aroma and I was like, God, I really want to use this in a mead. And not two days later did uh, Tom come back and go, oh, I've got this interesting project. Uh, you know, it's this uh, mead from the 1600s. And as I was going through it, I saw the word balm and I was I sent an email over to the guys at BBC who have a um, historian... They're going like, you know, is this balm, you know, lemon balm or something? And he's like, yeah, it generally would be you know, lemon balm. So end up picking some from that from that little park and hanging it up in the brewery and, and using it for that. And it turned out very tasty. Just going back to what we would do differently, do you think we would, would have such long boil times on our spices? Yeah, that, that was one of the other things too. Like, Or would you it, like would you infuse it differently, like cold cold water infusion? I, I, I do like uh, hot side for, um, for herbs and things like that. It seems to... Um, extract quite quickly and keep the tannins within it as well. Yeah, I'll probably reduce the boil time just a little bit, maybe bring it down to half an hour and maybe do that only for the more robust sort of herbs that are in there. And preserve some of the more nuanced. Yeah, because a lot of that when it got towards the end that you're right, the cloves were one of the ones that sort of you know stuck out over the top of everything else and it'd be nicer just to bring those other more delicate notes to the forefront. Okay, cool. Nice one, guys. I know that we're really into brewing all sorts of different types of meads with all sorts of different types of honey, but this episode's all about the history of mead and the older, the older styles of mead. So what other historical things would you like to try next if you were to brew another mead? I always had a, a in the back of my mind to brew a uh, a gluten free braggot and uh, during during research on trying to find you know what what sort of styles and 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 things could I adapt to to making it and there's a big um, mead culture in Ethiopia and there's also a big sorghum beer culture in Ethiopia and I would have assumed at some stage or another they would have either used grain to to bump up their their mead or or used uh, mead to sweeten out their their beer. So I'd kind of like to do this uh, this sorghum based nice um, braggot. Yeah, that'd be. I know a certain type of mead from Ethiopia called tej, or perhaps that might be the actual umbrella term for mead in in Ethiopia. But something I always tell people at events um, that Ethiopia's always had that that historic yeah. uh, basis for brewing mead, which is amazing. How about you, James? I think I'd like to try a piment, which is um, a sort of a transitional. Uh, mead and grape juice uh, base drink. So that's from when uh, honey became a little bit more, little bit more scarce, difficult to get hold of. So it was mixed to sort of back sweeten wine, or just to have that mixed flavour profile. I'd like to do the same with um with cider as well. Yeah, nice apple juice. Yeah, that sounds interesting. They call it a cider. Right? That's cizer, correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Nice one. Thank you so much, guys. That was really interesting. Yeah, it was. There's actually a lot of food for thought there. We've always been talking about how we need to, you know, make mead modern and sort of push it on. But there's actually quite a lot of inspiration looking back into the past. And it's really cool to have 
some parameters around what we're doing, um, particularly around some of those those more traditional styles. Um, so there's definitely something to think about there. Thanks a lot, Will and James. That was really interesting. When we come back for the the next podcast in a couple of weeks, uh, we're talking to a few of the people you might have heard already and some new faces uh, all about mead in the USA and about the scene there. It's much more evolved than perhaps the UK scene is. And it's really exciting to you know have a little bit of a preview into, into potentially where we're going. The other thing to mention is that um, later on in the season, we're looking to do a bit of a Q&A. So if you have any questions, um, the sillier the better, then please do email them through to podcast at gosnells.co.uk. The one question we're bound to get is um, how much do I bench? And it's currently 120. So just don't worry about writing in with that one. I've answered it here and now. <laughs> anyway, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye.